I am Platt on the line in Vancouver, British Columbia at thecommentary.ca. There's a new uh, short story collection from the poet and author Bruce Meyer. He joins me now to talk about Toast Soldiers. The stories therein are described as ones of individuals who fight against the fate that uh, they've been dealt. Sometimes they're facing defeat. Sometimes they're confronting their past or a changing world around them. Sometimes it's the elements. A few of the characters have to deal with the effects of war. We'll uh, talk about what uh, it's like writing about conflict and coming home. I'll get uh, Bruce to describe the stories in this book, what he's exploring when he writes, how he writes, and more. Bruce Meyer is uh, the author of 67 books of poetry, short stories, fiction, and nonfiction, including three national bestsellers, The Golden Thread, Portraits of Canadian Writers, and the anthology he co-edited with Barry Callahan, We Wasn't Pals. He is also a broadcaster and was the inaugural Poet Laureate of the City of Barrie, Ontario. He teaches at Georgian College and uh, Victoria College at the University of Toronto. This book is published by Crow's Net Books. He joined me from Barrie last week. Please uh, welcome to the Plant Online program, Bruce Meyer. Professor Meyer, good morning. Morning, or I guess it's good afternoon here. It's good morning where you are. Where so. I am here in Vancouver, yeah, and, yeah, and I've reached you in Barrie. And yeah. um, do, you have, do you have a full schedule in terms of teaching uh, this time of year? I teach full-time at uh, Georgian College, and I, um, <clears throat> where else do I teach? I also teach one course at the University of Toronto in creative writing, and it's a poetry workshop, and <clears throat> that's this evening. Right, and uh, they're they're learning how to do everything from sustenas to regular sort of you know poems and elegies and things like that too. So it's uh, it, it's something I enjoy um, because of my background as a poet, and uh, <clears throat> also because I I like working with the students. I like seeing results. Um, in the case of the the stu- what I teach in Georgian, it's essentially um, you know uh, five, uh, four sections of the same course. Um, and they're uh, they're essentially a composition course, so there's not really a great deal of scope for inst- uh, inspiration or anything. Like that. But um, I, I do the poetry thing just as a kind of a one-off thing uh, at the UT, uh, just because I you know it, it's it's fun to do, uh-huh. you know. Yeah. So yeah. And and um, th- that old adage of from your pupils you were taught. I mean, does that apply to you in terms of? I mean, you, you get something out of this, otherwise you wouldn't do it. I would suppose. I suppose. Yeah, I uh, I enjoy working with them. Um, I, I enjoy working with university students. I mean, it's not going to happen. I mean, I'm almost like I'm, I'm going to be 65 in April. But um, uh, just the fact that you know when I work with them, they're so inspired and, and they're so creative and they're they're looking for, um, I suppose, they're looking for guidance and they're looking for uh, discoveries. Uh, last year, for instance, uh, the University of Windsor, I was the subject of a course in the publishing practicum, mm-hmm. uh, and it was they produced a book of poems of mine called Grace of Falling Stars. <clears throat> and I, I had a great time working with those students because they uh, were constantly learning new things and discovering you know, ways to write and everything like that. And I gave them a, a lump of about, oh, 200 poems, and they had to cut it down to about 30 or 30, 35, somewhere in there. Mm-hmm. And um, they were great to work with. Um, um, so, uh, you know, uh, I wish that there was a course in, in writing short stories because uh, I would love something like that, you know. Um, it's, uh, it, right now there doesn't seem to be anything, at least at, at uh, Georgian College, you know, but yeah. uh, 
but you know, for the time being, you know, I'm I'm quite happy with uh, with uh, things as they are. You know, and uh, you know, it's um, it's it, uh, it, it's a good it's a good time to write because <clears throat> I get my marking and teaching done early in the day, mm-hmm. and and then I get to sort of write and work and things like that. It's kind of like being a soldier in a war that you've got um, <clears throat> you've got this downtime, which is very very useful and it's the time uh, you know I, I remember talking to people who served in the second world war and they said well there's the moments of, of extreme panic and that are punctuated by by you know uh, on, you know just overactivity and then suddenly there's like three or four days when nothing happens and i love that sort of possibility that there are times when nothing happens because it allows me to to uh, be creative in my own right and I find that, yeah. that, that, that what I input to the students comes back to me a several fold because they uh, uh, because they're they're mulling over ideas and things like that, and what they come back with is is surprising, you know, and it's quite often cre- you know very creative and uh, takes me by you know you know t- takes me by surprise the whole thing. So yeah, yeah. a number of uh, the characters in uh, the stories in Toast Soldiers. Uh, have seen service. They've been to war. Yeah. And you just alluded to that a moment ago, talking to, to people who have been to war in the past. Uh, wh- what is it about the sort of people that go to war that interests you? Um, well, in the last major, in World War Two, everybody had to go, you know, or everybody tried to go. Uh-huh. It was, I mean, there was a um, there was a major political, psychological battle that was going on against those who would, you know, destroy you know, personal freedoms and freedom, you know, and the whole idea of freedom of expression, freedom of speech, and the creative culture and everything like that. So the battle that was being fought was, you know, for, for yeah, creative culture. Um, the uh, in the case of the of the the the, the characters in Toast Soldiers, we've got characters who are essentially. Um, I suppose almost. Um, uh, I suppose they're the. They're, they remember what it was like to go to war, and I was fascinated as a child by some of my grandfather's friends who had served in the First World War. Mm-hmm. It was one man who'd been gassed uh, at the western on the Western Front. Then he got to Murmansk, and um, he got pneumonia in Murmansk. Uh, you know, basically. Uh, in the British expedition to help with help the Tsar, um, there was uh, uh, there was an, old, uh, an older gentleman uh, who uh, there's a couple of buildings named after him at uh, Queen's University. His name was Robert Harkness, uh-huh. and he'd been a commander of a battery in the First World War. And uh, and um, it, it, he, he the stories he was able to tell me about the war were important, and I ended up um, just. Almost by accident and by inspiration, I ended up editing the first anthology of World War One Canadian literature, <clears throat> and um, it was a book that uh, I produced or co-edited with Barry Callahan, and uh, the afterword was written by Margaret Atwood. Mm-hmm. And <clears throat> when Atwood did the uh, afterword, she said, "You know, this is this is a major act of, of you know devotion because all of these characters in the book." 40, 45 authors in it. And she said, they're all about to go into oblivion. And uh, I, when we 
when I, we did that, you know, suddenly these guys were present and they were speaking again. The only problem was Callahan would phone me up at like 2 in the morning and he'd say, I can't sleep. And I said, neither can I. And he says, are you suffering what I'm suffering from? And I said, possibly. What are you suffering from? And he says, I'm suffering from shell shock. Mm. And I said, yeah, so am I. <clears throat> Just the experience uh, that they were writing about was... Um, was was so uh, it, it was unnerving and it was <clears throat> an experience that had not yet been spoken of in terms of the uh, uh, it hadn't been spoken of in terms of the uh, uh, you know just the content and uh, the way at which it fit into our literature etc. and uh, so the, it wasn't pals became uh, a national bestseller. Yeah, that, that, that was the thing as I started reading the book, knowing nothing about you or, or even your age, um, how you were able to um, relate to, through your, your writing, uh, these people who had sought, um, uh, who, who, had, who had seen service, I should say. And um, th th there's something, I, I don't know, an affinity that you might have. I don't, I don't know if that's, a, that's the right way to put it, but... Um, there is a connection, if you will, to... Yeah, uh, well, the, uh, and the, the, the protagonist in the title story, mm -hmm. his name is uh, Keith, uh, actually survived the Nijmegen Bridge uh, attack. You know, the, the was made into a movie with uh, Anthony Hopkins and Sean Connery, and it was called The Bridge Too Far. Right, right. And um, the uh, uh, there were people that my mother knew, my mother's generation, who fought in World War II, and they they they've been some of them have been at Nijmegen, and, um, and my sister came back from a like a academic conference that had been held in Nijmegen, and uh, I can remember being absolutely intrigued by all these this series of bridges, you know, spanning this huge sort of expanse of land, <coughs> and uh, you could see that they were impossible to take and. Uh, but the, the, the interesting thing about, about someone like Keith, who's the title, who's the, the protagonist, is he goes on fighting the war. And it's, it's curious that the war, the, the curious thing about war is that it doesn't end. Mm -hmm. uh, I mean, there, there's treaties signed, there's uh, moments when things coalesce and the, the parties stand down and so forth. But war doesn't end. It remains a kind of a psychological presence in a lot of these characters. And uh, I just found that fascinating, <clears throat> and uh, and it was the, the story of Keith is actually based on someone I met in a senior's home in England back in the early 80s when I was over doing research on World War One candlelit. Um, I met someone who had served at Nijmegen in the Second World War, and um, if you take a look at something like the Ghosts, for example. Mm -hmm. I'm fascinated by the idea that there are stories that aren't told. And I'm fascinated by the idea that there's whole segments of our literature and our consciousness, such as World War I, <coughs> that have been suppressed. And that they've, they've gone completely off the map as far as um, the candlelit goes and as far as the, uh, uh, the, you know, <coughs> the, the, the way in which we view ourselves and that we see each other, ourselves, uh, you know, Culturally, because World War One especially was was a, uh, not only did it redefine what war was, it redefined what language was. <clears throat> so, in a story like The Ghosts, you've got these these characters who are 
uh, part of the Chinese labor battalion, and they're only finding out now what the who but what the labor battalions were all about. And they were, in fact, there was a, a basically seventy, I guess I want to say seventy-five thousand uh, in the Chinese people <coughs> who were, in fact, <coughs> you know, uh, drawn into service in the First World War. And they, when what happened was that when they uh, on their way to England, the 75,000 or so um, disappeared, like they died at sea or whatever. Mm-hmm. And um, I'm just opening my pages here. Hang on. Um, the, uh, the the, the 75,000 or so, um, you know, their, their numbers were greatly reduced, and they were put in, they were taken across the Pacific in cattle boats, and then they got reached Vancouver, and they were put in cattle cars. And they were shipped standing up, almost like uh, like refugees standing mm-hmm. up in a, in a box car all the way from Vancouver to Halifax, which took days. Of course, a lot of them died in the process. Yeah. And then <clears throat> there was the uh, that they got on board ships and they ended up in France. And by the time they came home, there's only about three thousand of them left. <clears throat> they don't know what happened to all the others. Mm-hmm. And a lot of them were, especially like the, the three. The, uh, the three p- uh, characters in um, in uh, the, the the poem the um, uh, what is it now the poem um, um, oh uh, it's the one that's about uh, uh, it's it's the one about the three soldiers you know oh. uh, in that particular story <coughs> the, uh, um, the they're the survivors and they're still there and it's 1922 and they're digging up bombs. There's a lot of untold stories that are part of our our cultural heritage, and they're not being told. And I I feel that a, a kind of a duty to to start telling these stories, yeah. you know. And I, the book the story is called The Ghost, and uh, uh, I it's I feel that there's a duty to tell those stories, you know. So what, what, why um, do you think fiction lends itself to that process of telling those stories as opposed to say nonfiction or or uh, uh, a form of, of writing that, that uh, would say we would recognize as history. I mean, fi- I, 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 let's be clear here. As, as I'm reading the book, you're very reverent to uh, the facts, if you will, and 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 what actually happened. But but there's something about fiction that makes it. I don't know if interesting is the right word, but something that that's com- that makes it more compelling for for a reader, if you will. Well, I uh, I uh, believe that. Uh that um, you know that uh, in writing factual fiction, if I can, uh, like uh, something like even like the Promised Land, for example, is mm-hmm. about, <coughs> basically based on my story of my wife growing up in Elliott Lake and what Elliott Lake was like. But also, I lived through the Cuban Missile Crisis mm-hmm. as, a, as, a, as a kindergarten student, and uh, I, I saw this sort of panic in people's eyes. In the case of something like um, Thine is the Kingdom, there's the question of well, what actually happened? You know, that's the story about the, the Australian who's been crucified in the barn, and everybody knows about the who's studying World War II, World War One, uh, such as Norm Christie, who I know quite well. Um, they always say, well, no one has been able to prove this particular story, but I decided to put an eyewitness in there in the story, which is the grandfather, and he's arguing with the. Um, with the, uh, the, uh, the the sort of the so-called experts and so forth, 
Um, and I, the other thing is I, I've tried not just to sort of keep it to one one sort of side. It, it, I've also thrown in things like Hopeless, <laughs> which is about someone who, uh, um, who got out of Italy before the, the Second World War. Mm-hmm. Um, and, um, you know, I, I'm, I'm fascinated by the fact that, that, that stories essentially can be true. And, um, you know, that, that fiction comes from an element of the truth or a shard of the truth. And then you take that and you spin it into something. And uh, so that, uh, you know, I'm fascinated by, for instance, by, I don't know why, I'm fascinated by the early days of Las Vegas as it sort of rose out of the desert. Mm. And, um, uh, but then there's a story like Toy Soldiers, which is about, I suppose it's about uh, the way in which um, someone has been trained as a child to believe that, that, uh, that they're supposed to die in a foreign war. And I can remember interviewing Andrew Motion, who was later British Poet Laureate, and he said, uh, he says his one regret, he said his one regret in life was not leading a bayonet charge, which is kind of crazy when you think of it. <laughs> yeah. But then you read something like, I suppose like, um, uh, uh, Rupert Brooke, and you've got a poem um, called The Soldier, and it goes, if I should die, I think only this, that there's some corner of a foreign field that is forever England. And that was the kind of mentality that was driving the, the sort of the British Empire. And um, the, the question is, well, what, what were the results? Well, you get stories like um, stories like the, um, um, uh, where is it now? It's uh, stories such as, um, I'm looking for it here, um, Stories such as, hmm, I can't seem to, oh, it's uh, uh, stories like the, uh, uh, where is it, oh, it's in here somewhere, where is it, it's the one about the, uh, it's what, it's the one about, um, um, where is it now, I'm trying to actually see if I can't find it here, I'm going down through the list, and then, uh, um, there's, there's a story about, um, about the, 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 the censor in Mac the Knife, there's the story about the um, <clears throat> about um, oh what is it here? Um, I'm just looking for it. If you can bear with me, mm-hmm. it's it's uh, the point is that there are these these stories that explain what actually happened. So that in the case of someone like the um, like the characters in um, in uh, say a narrow space, for instance. Yeah, narrow space. I knew people who were displaced people after the first world, after the second world war, mm-hmm. and they were known, as, you know, kind of in Toronto parlance as DPs, which stood for displaced persons. And the question is, well, how how are displaced persons recognized or accepted and so forth? And uh, this is a story about a boy who loses his father, but his father is a as a displaced person, so is his mother. And, uh, you know, the, the father falls from a construction site. And the question is, well, how do they cope? Because the, the avenue that they have for fitting into our society is gone, you know, for them. Um, and the mother doesn't speak any English. And so it becomes a process of really um, being challenged by, by fact. And I, I love being challenged by facts. 
the, the fiction part is, is you know, noble and useful and things like that. But the, but the factual part is what drives the whole thing. And, um, yeah. One of the themes in a narrow space is, um, uh, well, it begins with, with, with the son uh, wanting to know more about the father. We, in turn, learn more about the mother in the course of the story. Uh, R- Roosevelt Dimes um, is a story of uh, a, a son again. Uh, trying to understand uh, his father. That's another theme that I, I found throughout the book of uh, uh, children, I guess, or, or sons especially. Trying and then, then there's a story like Inches, for example, mm-hmm. where they, you know, the father is just, you know, the father is, is you know, just crazy. Um, and uh, he, the little boy ends up, you know, killing his father, and he ends up in a uh, psychiatric you know, hospital. Um, it's this question of, what do we inherit from our fathers, you know? And uh, in the case of Toast Soldiers, a lot of the things we inherit from our fathers is this, is almost like a sense of of who we are supposed to be rather than who we are. Mm-hmm. And as a result, you, you get um, uh, these, these characters who are essentially kind of trying to find themselves. I mean, you've got a very positive you know, father-son relationship and something like things, but it just ends badly, you know. I mean, he, he I shouldn't give it away, but he ends up running over his father accidentally with his tractor, you know. Yeah. So, um, and um, uh, something like um, uh, the story Jenny, you know, um, was actually in is a World War II story, and it was actually based on something my uncle did. My uncle was a tail gunner on a Lancaster in the Second World War. But before the war, he had worked with um, the father of a, a famous Toronto bookseller, an antiquarian bookseller by the name of Hugh Anson Cartwright. And they had been prospectors up north, and they owned a Jenny. And they flew it in and out of the, the Arctic, you know, uh, you know, all seasons of the year. I mean, times of the year they shouldn't have had no business being up in the air, you know, mm-hmm. because, you know, the, what the ice and the cold did to the engines. And, of course, he crashes the Jenny, and while he's... You know, he's lying there and everything like that. And it was something my uncle said. He says, you have never known what it's like to be alone in the world until you're sleeping under the stars in the Arctic in the middle of winter. And he says, there's nothing like that. And as he, the, the protagonist in Jenny is, is, is basically watching um, the, his plane's crash and he can't go anywhere and he, he thinks, okay, I'm going to die. Mm-hmm. But as he's lying there, he sees the aurora borealis. And I got fascinated because I read a couple of articles on this in scientific uh, journals and so forth that said um, the aurora borealis was about, um, is, is looks like a film that's being played, but it also makes sounds. Mm-hmm. And you, you hear claps and bangs and so forth. And you can actually go on YouTube and you can hear the sounds that the aurora borealis makes, and uh, you know, the ancient Vikings were terrified by them because they, you know, <laughs> suddenly the sky goes boom on. Right. You know. Yeah. Yeah. Um, but then there's the the issue of the um, of, of just the what you see in the northern lights, and if you watch the northern lights, it, it plays out like a strip, like a movie strip, and you can see characters moving around it. And I thought, gee, this is this is fascinating, and I kept watching films of the aurora borealis and they're not just lights there mm-hmm. there are this there this film that seems to go and he sees his entire future in this film 
and including the 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 uh, the, uh, the episode in the, with the tail gunner and the and the German who or whoever falls out of his plane and ends up on his on on the back of his turret, you know, in the middle of the night, and you can imagine how terrifying that would be. That there's someone on the outside of the class who wants in, and you have no way of letting them in into the turret, and you have no way of making sure they're safe, and they're clinging onto the turret for dear life. And uh, it, it, it struck me as such an important moment, you know, in the story. But it's also, again, about the founding of Elliott Lake because the same uncle um, was and and uh, was in fact uh, the person whose Geiger counter found Elliott Lake. My uh, he and my aunt uh, went prospecting just after they were married, and they went with a team of people. My aunt didn't trust him going off into the woods because she says, "Oh no, you're going to find some going off with some woods person, and you know you're, it'll be the end of our marriage." <laughs> <laughs> and you know, and if you're up in the bush, you know, you know, in the Algoma region, you're not going to run into people. Yeah. It's yeah. not going to happen. But um, apparently, on the way. Th- in uh, from from Lake Huron, which is about 18 miles to Elliott Lake, um, my aunt lost her her rubber welly, you know, her, her, her rubber boot, uh-huh. and um, uh, and it, it, the more they tried to get it out, the more deeper it sank, and eventually they said, no, you, uh, you, you'll just have to stay here, and she said, no, I'll be eaten by live animals, uh, wild animals, and uh, so she said, no, you have to carry me back to the North Shore. And so he gave his Geiger counter to the man who, I think his name was Brissenden, the man who, who was, in fact, the discoverer of Elliott Lake and the, the uranium deposits there. And he carried my aunt on his back all the way out. And he, boy, he was ticked about that. Because <laughs> it, it, yeah. it, this was his big moment of yeah. discovery. Yeah. And, uh, of course, the character in the story, um, you know, um, um, uh, the story about the... Uh, uh, about the the Northern Lights and so forth, uh, you know, which is essentially the uh, the story about the uh, oh, what is it now? I lost lost the title again. It's uh, uh, it's not Promised Land, but it's the other one about about uh, the nuclear world and the, sort of the nuclear aftermath and everything like that. Um, it, it, it's this moment at which you suddenly find yourself in um, in a world that is has changed in a flash. It's got like you've gone from, from you know, uh, essentially an analog sort of you know, bomb world into in fact the uh, a kind of world that is essentially made of, of um, uh, you know, it's made it's driven by uranium and everything. So it, it's about the uranium revolution and so forth. Um, you know, so. Um, I was fascinated by that, and I'm also fascinated by characters who end up in the north, like as in uh, the story of the Star Maker Machine, mm. which is, you know, again, a quote from a Joni Mitchell song, you know, that says, I was a free man in Paris, I felt unfettered and alive, nobody calling me up for favors, no one's future to decide, I'd, you know, I'd go back there tomorrow, except for the work I've taken on, stoking the Star Maker Machinery behind the popular song. And uh, I was fascinated by Johnny Mitchell's, you know, song, uh, simply because it um, it sort of points towards the idea that 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 your the, the the character is 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 part of a kind of a the the, the miasma of, or he's lost in a kind of miasma of 
of you know rock music and so forth, and he just wants to go home. And the question is, how can he get home? Because he hasn't got the money, and so he keeps dreaming about you know making it home and so yeah. forth. So, you know, the, the point is that I'm fascinated, absolutely fascinated by by little details. And the, one of the paintings I've always loved was by is by uh, Jean Renoir, and it's the uh, girl in the purple dress with the blue watering can. I don't uh-huh. know whether you know it. Yeah. But that's what's at the root of Macron. And uh, I thought, well, wait a sec, what happens if you've got a, a woman who who appears to live forever, you know, and uh, she's raising this, this, this uh, you know, this, for all intents and purposes, little girl. But uh, she comes from a, a tradition where, again, the results of war, the effects of war are being felt. And her father was, you know, very badly injured and, and disfigured in the Franco-Prussian War. So what does she do? Well, she, uh, you know, uh, you know, eventually just sort of says, okay, I'm going to, this is how I'm going to protect uh, this nephew of mine, and it turns out the nephew, or the, the, the little girl is not a little girl at all. The little girl is a nephew, and she's not, in fact, his grandmare. She's, in fact, his, 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 his uh, basically his uncle. And it, it becomes a question then of, you know, what role does gender play? And, and gender is a kind of a, in some ways, is a mask, you know, for, uh, for what's happening. Yeah, what um, it, it, it's fascinating hearing the genesis of, of these stories that, that we read in, in to- Toast Soldiers. Um, when you're writing, um, I, I know it's work. You're, you're a writer. It, it's it's your your vocation. Uh, is it? Uh, um, is a lot of it fun as well? It is. I mean, Joseph Campbell talks about finding your bliss. Uh-huh. And I find that when I sit down to write, uh, the world basically stops. It ceases to exist and just me in the story. And, um, I, you know, I lose track of time so that my wife comes down, you know, and says, aren't you coming to bed? And it's like 3.30 in the morning. And I'm st- I've been writing since like 9 o'clock at night. Um, I, I lose track of time when I write. Um, the other thing is I, I get to meet my characters. And if they become the, the basis for a short story, they essentially, um, they essentially, um, you know, are, are, are they become the basis for the short story because they want to talk to me. <laughs> yeah, that sounds yeah. weird, you know. Yeah, yeah. I mean, you shouldn't be talking to imaginary people. But uh, the point is that, that that the fact that they are imaginary, that that, that they're characters who have suddenly become real uh, because of what I'm going to say about them or what I do say about them <coughs> is, uh, <coughs> excuse me, very, you know, it, it's very satisfying in a way that I have called these individuals forth out of oblivion and they're talking to me. And um, so I don't consider writing to be work. Uh-huh. Um, I, I consider the job of proofreading to be work. I'll bet, yeah. Proofreading is, is a nightmare for me. And uh, in the case of um, the story Hopeless, uh, I was very fortunate that a friend of mine, is uh, Rosanna Missalota Battigelli, I don't know if you've heard of her or not, but she published a book with Anana called um, um, uh, Pigeon uh, Soup, and she also did another book 
I forget who did it with. She did it with. It was called La Brigatenza. And, uh, and you know, she's Italian. And she says, I'll look over all the Italian in uh, Hopeless for you, and I'll, I'll, I'll make sure it's correct. I want that sense of accuracy. You know? And uh, <clears throat> the, the fact that she was able to go through and make sure that the Italian was, in fact, absolutely perfect Italian, yeah. rather than just Google Translate Italian, right. um, meant, meant that there was a sense of complete authenticity to it. Uh, and in the, state, in the case of the story Eternity, where you've got the, the, the two brothers who are, you know, in, who are Sikhs who are serving on, uh, in, in um, the Kashmir area, uh, where, in fact, the, the Indian, Indian army stares down the Pakistani army constantly. They, they never leave. You know, they're just there staring at each other. And they're all armed, and they're waiting for the, you know, the, the signal to go off and shoot each other. And... Uh, so I, I teach a number of students from India. So I asked them. I said, Can, "How do you say this in, in, in uh, you know, in in, uh, in 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 the Sikh language?" And they were quite helpful. They were helpful and forthcoming about with details. So the, the the stories aren't just writing. They are. Um, and I think that's one of the problems with Canlet that they're just writing. I I I want to do research. I, uh -huh. The story should be a product of of both the imagination and the presence of fact. And when you fuse the two together, you get a completely different, I suppose, uh, take on the world and a completely different, almost, um, I suppose, like you'd call it a, a different sense of 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 a reality that emerges, which you know I hadn't expected, yeah. and it's a much richer reality because they not only are are they suddenly real to me the characters, but they are characters who who um, are within their context and that they are accurate within their context. So um, and Nicholas Ruddick, who uh, <coughs> uh, is a very good short story writer and doctor, and I know him. Uh, for instance, the story Warmth, he said, you know, you, you, need, you have this problem, this problem, this problem in an emergency room. <clears throat> so I said, okay. So he really, uh, his input really made the story Warmth into something entirely different, you know. Yeah. So anyways, the, the, the point is that I, I think there has to be, uh, the root of all fiction is verity. And if you're not um, addressing the sense of, of what uh, a story can be in terms of its basis in reality, it, it doesn't it doesn't involve itself with reality. It becomes a kind of a disconnected, I suppose, um, world where the characters aren't really real in any way. And mm -hmm. I think that that's the shame because there's a, it's a huge missed opportunity to comment not just on the characters and their their what they know, but it's a huge opportunity to, care, uh, to comment on this world, the world we live in, and uh, that's when everything fires on all cylinders. Is when you have a story that that seems real like that. Yeah. Just sounds exciting. I mean, as I speak as someone who, who doesn't write. Um, in that vein, um, is your mind different when you're writing a short story as opposed to say poetry? Yeah, I. Uh, that's a good question. I. Um, 
Ann Michaels and I um, had lunch. I knew Ann. I published Ann Michaels' first poems and so forth when I when we were undergrads. And uh, uh, I remember uh, Ann saying to me over lunch one day uh, when we were having lunch, she said, "What's the difference between poetry and prose?" And I said, "Well, prose has to work by a logic. You know, when you write a short story, there's a logic involved in the actual story that everything has to sort of be." has to line up, it has to be, you know, airtight and sequential, and you can't do things in a short story you can't do in the world, whereas in a poem, you're dealing with metaphorical logic rather than actual logic, and metaphorical logic is when the images uh, and the uh, and the, the voice and everything function in such a way that you're able to gap, if you wish, and just shift gears. Uh, in such a way that, that the that the whole thing becomes, um, I suppose, a, a an imaginative piece of artifice rather than, in fact, uh, a piece of commentary. Yeah, yeah. Um, Bruce, I've kept you longer than I said I would. I've enjoyed our chat. Um, I appreciate your time. Oh, I'm I'm happy to answer your questions. You know, so and I uh, haven't talked to you here. <laughs> no, you haven't. You, you, I, I hope people listening uh, are. Uh, uh, inclined to buy the book after hearing um, our, our chat today. I appreciate your time again, as I said. Thanks for this, Bruce. Okay, great. Well, thank you, Joe, and I appreciate your time. And The book is called Toast Soldiers. It's uh, published by Crow's Net Books. Its author, uh, Bruce Meyer, joined me from Barrie, Ontario. In Vancouver, I'm Joseph Clanton.